Joshua chapter 11. As we move into chapter 11 now, we move to the north of Palestine. There's a new ringleader against Israel named Jabin. He's the king of Hazor. He musters a new coalition against Israel. He's the dominating partner among all these new allies. Hazor was located at a place called Tel El-Qaeda, which was about 10 miles north of the Sea of Chinnereth or Galilee. In its prime during the Middle Bronze Age, Hazor was a massive site for that time. The upper city was about 30 acres, the lower about 175, with an estimated population of about 40,000 people. It dominated the main branches of the Villa Maurice, which was the main highway that led from Egypt to Mesopotamia to Syria. It's argued that this is the Hazor that Joshua destroyed sometime around 1430 to 1400 BC. There are some other sites mentioned here that can't be located historically with any certainty, like Medan and uh, Akshaf in verse 1, but the references to the Arabah south of Chinnereth in the upper Jordan Valley in verse 2, the area of Dor near Mount Carmel on the Mediterranean also in verse 2, to Metropolitan Sidon in verse 8, to Mount Hermon located northeast of former Lake Huleb placed all this action in the general area of Lower and Upper Galilee. Now, the question before us tonight, which you might be asking now as you listen to this boring geography lesson, is how did Israel win all of these battles? There is a ton of space given in this text, relatively speaking, to describe the opponents of God's people. Now, we like to think that we are contributing something that is indispensable or invaluable to our faith, to our standing with God. This is natural in us. None of us can avoid this. There's something that we think we have or that we've given or that we're doing um, that if it wasn't for that thing, even with all of God's grace and His goodness, if it wasn't for what I was contributing to it, God probably wouldn't count us as His own. And so we... We, we make up phrases. We make up things like we talk about rededicating our lives. Right? That's a word that's not in the Bible. But we use it all the time because we, we think so much rests on us. And so it's time for me to get serious, for me to rededicate my life, for me to, you know, get back to it and all this sort of thing. And we hang our hats on these types of things. We like to talk about how we have to really feel or uh, want to please God. And we come to believe that wanting to please God or wishing that we could please God is what sets us apart from people that don't love the Lord. And, and that, that even though we don't do it, even though we're not perfect, wanting to be perfect, wishing that we could be better, that's the same thing as actually doing it. And so we take confidence in the fact that we feel this when the world does it and so therefore God approves of us. It's like when we all lie and sing the song, I Surrender All. We're lying. No, you don't. And I don't either. Right? But we sing it. Nobody surrenders all. Nobody that we know has ever surrendered all. Why do we sing that song? We're just lying. Right? But we think that if we wish we could surrender all, if we really want to surrender all, that God sees that. And God sees our hearts and He's pleased, but... That's not what the Bible teaches at all. 
The fact that God sees beyond our works or the outward appearance to our hearts is actually scary. That's not bad. That, that's not good news. It's very terrifying news that God knows what we're really all about. And God's response to seeing our hearts as they are was not to say, you know what? I know the world means well. I know you all wish you could be holy and so I'm just going to make it so everything's okay and I won't be angry at your sin and your rebellion anymore. No. What does God do because He knows who we really are on the inside? He sends His Son to live and to die for us and even rise again for us. The eyes of our hearts, the eyes of faith, have to be fixed on Jesus as the source and means and goal of everything to do with our faith. Every part of it. Our opponents without us, within us, they are too great. They are too strong for us. Jesus and me are not going to defeat them. We are dependent at all times on the strength and sovereignty of our God to deliver us. God's people always have been. It's all Jesus or it's nothing. It's when we are weak and He is strong that we'll see the true sufficiency of His help. It's in Christ and in Christ alone that all we need has been purchased and provided. As God scorched the earth in the promised land so that His people could possess it, Jesus scorched the earth of sin and death and of the enemy that He might bring us all the way safely home to Himself. Our final victory will come on the back and by the strength of Jesus for us or it will not come at all. He must be the only thing in which we have any and all faith. Let me pray and we'll look at how this passage teaches us these things. Father, I pray that You would soften our hearts tonight to receive Your Word. Lord, we reject it. We naturally don't like it. We don't want to hear what it implies about us. We like to think better of ourselves and our accomplishments and our records, Father. But You know better. You always have. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that we would be freed to fully rely on Jesus for both our forgiveness and our righteousness, for our endurance and for our victory. And let us realize what we're up against if we don't have Him and without Him. And we ask this in His name. Amen. Look at the first verse here of chapter 11. When Javan, king of Hazor, heard of this, the defeat of the southern part of the promised land, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Chinnarath, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their, for, their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Maram to fight against Israel. Goodness sakes. The, the Bible doesn't say this is a large force. Do you notice that? It says this is a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. Things Israel did not have. And if you're talking about ancient warfare and on one side of the field you have foot soldiers and no horses and no chariots and on the other side you have a great horde and horses and chariots, you know how that's going to go. 
and how it would have went every time. The author takes five verses, which again, relatively speaking, is a lot of space to describe in great detail the forces that are arrayed against Israel. Why is he telling it like this? Why does he spill so much ink to name the kings, the different locations, the different ethnic groups involved in this coalition against Israel? A single sentence would have sufficed. King Jabin summoned his confederation and their armies in order to make a massive assault against Israel. We, we, we got it. That would do it. We'd know. But he dwells on the massive number of people and the greatness of their military strength. He wants the reader to see and maybe even feel how overwhelming this would have been for you if you were an Israelite watching these forces mount up against you. And how hopeless is the situation Israel actually faces here. Dale Ralph Davis comments that more often than not, the Bible wants to impress our imaginations rather than merely inform our brains. There's a method to the madness of this description here. There are massive resources available to the enemies of God to destroy us. And there are literally billions more of them than there are of us. There were who knows how many more against Israel. So some will trust in all those chariots and horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so with Joshua here, when we see Canaan's numerical and even technological advantages for that time, we begin to realize just how strong Yahweh's right arm must be for his people. Remember Deuteronomy 20 verse 1. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots, plus an army larger than yours, you must not be afraid of them. For Yahweh your God is with you, the one who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, we know that is not easy to believe. We know from Israel's history that even though they saw so much of God's deliverance, they still doubted. They still were disbelieving. We know in our own lives we have the promises of God and when things don't go the way we think they will go because we have prayed and because we have said in our hearts, Lord, I want to rely on you. I want to trust you. And then it goes the opposite of how we were praying, the opposite of how we wanted it to go. We know how hard it is to believe it even when God says it. So imagine if what you had to believe as you were looking at these, this great horde of your enemies that wanted to kill you and wipe you out completely. Imagine having to believe in that moment that, well, He'll do it again. He'll be with us again. But the God who is strong enough to deliver us from slavery, they ought to have thought, is stronger still to defeat even our greatest enemies. We pick it up in verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow, at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Moram and fell upon them. So look at how explicit the scripture is regarding the sovereignty of God at work in this situation. In verse 6, God gives his sovereign assurance that he will give over all of them slain to Israel. All the enemy soldiers, this great horde, all wiped out, dead. And then in verse 7, the means by which he accomplishes this is that Israel blasts into the enemy camp in a surprise attack. Maybe it was at night. God's sovereignty is clear. When God decrees what will be, it will be. It will happen. But it seems that more often than not, rather than just 
making something magically happen because He's sovereign, God works through human means. Which speaks even more of the extent of His sovereignty. He employs us to accomplish His will. So often, we usually, in our minds, we, we kind of decry sovereignty as fatalistic. Well, everything's all determined. Why do anything, right? That, that's, that's just unbiblical to think that way. It really is. The Bible never teaches that sovereignty is like that. Look, look at this here. I will give over all of them to you slain. Why doesn't Joshua say, oh, sweet, I'm going to go to bed. It's all predetermined, right? Nobody in the Bible does that. Joshua says, all right, he's going to give us to them. Let's attack. Let's go. Let's surprise them and wipe them out. We can't use our inability to understand how two seemingly contradictory truths, sovereignty from God, free will from us, allegedly, our inability to understand how those two things can work together does not mean they don't work together. And if you'll notice, the one that we kind of let go of is sovereignty and focus more on our wills. That doctrine is all over Scripture. It's too pervasive in the Bible. right? Whatever our answer is theologically to the sovereignty of God, it can't be that God is not sovereign. Nor can it be that in His sovereignty, He's um, you know, handed over His sovereignty to us, and now we're sovereign. Absolutely not. We better hope not. When we read that God is sovereign, let it energize us, not defeat us. Let it give us confidence that if He says our work is not in vain, then our work is not in vain. All the shalls and wills in the Bible shall and will be. That's what sovereignty means for our understanding. Just look at the military strategy Joshua still employs here. He attacks Jabin's forces in their camp by the waters of Maram in verse 7. Now, Maram was in Upper Galilee. It's about 4,000 feet above sea level. My family and I have lived about 135 feet below sea level in Brawley. I'll take 4,000 feet above any day and the lack of humidity. But it's 4,000 feet above sea level, not very conducive to maneuvering chariots. Now, Maram might have been an assembling point for Jabin's confederation, and they were planning on meeting Joshua much further south on the plain of Esdralon when chariots and horses would have been a definite advantage. But because Joshua believed and took heart in the sovereignty and promise of God, he attacked and he negated any tactical advantage chariots or horses would have had. So just because God promises victory doesn't mean you can't use your brain, right? Jesus has promised us that he will build his church. Therefore, share the gospel all the time. All the time. Go to your neighbors. Go to the nations. Use as much strategy and intent as you can. He's going to save people. He's going to build His church. That's a statement from Jesus of what He will do. Not what He might do if we do the right thing. But what He will do. He's putting together the living stone. Jesus is. And He does it through evangelism. Through the proclamation of the Gospel. He's going to save. He's going to win the victory in the promised land. So we pick it up in verse 8. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephoth Maim and eastward as far as the valley of Mitzvah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. 
He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Such is the sufficiency of God's help. Most of you probably know what hamstringing a horse is, but it makes a horse useless for military purposes. The large tendon at the back of the knee on the hind legs was cut. And what, what, what do we do? That's so cruel. Not when the lives of humans are at stake, it's not. Israel's lives were at stake. And it's funny that we think we're so kind-hearted because we like animals so much. How could they kill the poor horses? How could they hamstring? What about the people of Israel? What about all the babies in Israel? What about the people of Canaan, for goodness sakes? The women and the children? There's a priority to human life in the Bible, beloved. And God makes that clear time and time again. War is the means of God's help for Israel here. Conquest and blood. This is how God negated the military advantage of the Canaanites. By the hamstringing of their horses. And don't, you don't have to come to me later and tell me that why you really love animals and how much they mean to you. And I, I understand all that. Just They're not more important than humans. And you, we, we can't, we have to keep things like that in mind. Verse 10. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded but none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses' his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So, scorched earth, beloved. That's the policy. God will clear the land for His people. He will make the worst of spaces habitable habitable and green for His children. To be under His care is life and peace. To be under His wrath is death and condemnation. And there are no other places to be. It's one or the other. Joshua is presented here you can see it in the way the verses are written as God's model servant. Right? He's, he's going out conquering and to conquer. Let us get images of Jesus the warrior in our heads. There's a hint of the awe at His service in verse 12 and in verse, verse 15. He did all that the Lord commanded. Specifically, if we were to look back, what it means is what God commanded in Exodus 34, 11-16 regarding the promised land. Numbers 33, 51-54. Deuteronomy 20:16 to 18. He listened to the word of the Lord. That makes him the model servant. Because nobody actually listens to the Lord line by line. Like Joshua did in the conquest of Canaan. Obedience to God in Joshua's case meant decimating and expelling the native population of Canaan. And again, we, we can question this as unnecessarily vicious. But that's because we, and me neither... 
don't comprehend the spiritual cancer that existed throughout Canaan and what leaving them alive would have done. And as you know, they did leave many alive and it led to their complete destruction. And by the way, when we question this, do we really think that given the option, we would be kinder than God is? Do we really think we could pull off more kindness towards humanity than God has? That God really has to answer to this revulsion we feel at this. Like, He needs to, to explain this to us. You, you've probably heard, uh, it's, it's pretty, I guess it's fairly popular now, Robert De Niro's interview, What Would You Do If There Is a God? And he said, well, I'd, um, he'd have a lot of explaining to do. To, to, to who, Robert? To you, the actor, you, you pretend for a living, and you want God to explain everything to you? Maybe we actually don't have a clue as to what holiness is. So we are repulsed by this. I'm not saying it's easy to understand or easy to swallow. I'm saying maybe we don't understand why the text is never afraid to tell us these things about our God. Why doesn't the Bible hide some of this? Like, couldn't you just say that God wanted Israel to take the promised land and tell us about the war and make it sound like Joshua's idea and maybe they went overboard sometimes? And No, they didn't do enough. God tells us these things. Are we so obedient and righteous that we can question God, that maybe we would avoid God's wrath if given the chance? And to this day... The church, God's people, still does this kind of thing with God's Word. We think that we take God's laws very seriously. And we're very moral because we're against things as we should be, like homosexuality or fornication. They're sins. No question. No compromise there. But we don't submit to God's law at all. We take it much less seriously when it comes to gossiping and murmuring and complaining. Which just remember, as you, as we do that again and again and again and again, it's become such a habit, we don't even repent of it, we don't even think we're sinning, we just think we're being people, that God left an entire generation out of the promised land because they wouldn't shut up. They murmured and complained and griped and God couldn't stand that generation. He loathed them, the Bible said. Scripture never says he loathed tax collectors. It never says he loathed prostitutes when Jesus was here. But he was despised by murmuring, complaining people. And we gripe the second something doesn't go our way. We don't take his law that seriously when it comes to gossiping or murmuring or complaining or, or pride, which is also an abomination in the sight of God. A proud heart. When was the last time we heard about how pride is an abomination to God? And we, we, we're proud of being proud of things. Because, it's, because we're righteous enough to know what's really pride when you're proud of something and what's really not pride when you're proud of something. We'll sing it. I'm proud of this. I'm proud of that. Really? Amazing. We don't take our pride seriously. We don't take God's command seriously in ridding the church of divisive and malignant people. 
Like God gave us a way to stay healthy, but we don't listen. We've been friends for too long. We're not going to do that. We're not going to follow your word, Lord. We don't take him seriously there. We'll just no accountability for being divisive and sowing discord. No accountability as though it's not in the Bible. How much God hates the person who does that. We don't talk about that, do we? Hates the one who sows discord. That's more than just hating the discord. God hates the one who sows discord. And, and we, we don't care. We're going to say what we want to say. And we got it right there in black and white, but that doesn't stop us. We don't fear Him. We don't take repentance seriously. Like we're not going to give an account. Like we don't have to repent. When, when was the last time you saw that? Massive repentance for sins that have built up and built up and built up and destroyed the church. When was the last time you saw the people responsible for that repenting for that? They don't. They stay. They keep sowing discord. Pastors come and go. They stay. So we say God's Word is our only rule of faith and practice, but we don't obey it. We don't submit to it. So why would we question the Word of the Lord? Why would we question His will? We act like God doesn't know. Or worse, that He doesn't care what we're doing. We we can become absolutely blinded in the pursuit to get our own way to our own sinfulness. That's who we are. We need a Savior stronger than anything we might be able to work up that is good. We need somebody to win the battle for us. God is not blessing you or near to you because of anything you're contributing to this. He's for you and always will be and blessing you on account of Christ for you. So we don't look to ourselves. We don't have faith in ourselves. Joshua attacked because he believed the Lord. Not because he had trust in himself. God had made a promise or Joshua said, okay. Verse 15 again. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now that, it seems pretty plain. So God gave some laws and some commands and Joshua did them. Big deal. But here, think of the difference between Joshua and basically every other ruler Israel was going to have. They just didn't do this. They just didn't do the thing Joshua did. Every ruler of Israel from Joshua forward should have listened. They should have looked at who Joshua was and thought, okay, that's, that's how, that's what I need to do. That's all it would have taken to stay under God's covenant blessing and keep Him fighting for you. So what makes a model leader in God's eyes is not the size of his chariot force, the number of females in his harem, or an immaculate royal zoo of some kind or something. We even think the markers are we celebrate of our evangelical successes impress our God, but they, they don't. He's doing all the work. Now Joshua was obedient in these matters, but he wasn't always. He wasn't perfect. Or he would have been Israel's Messiah. 
Now, he has that name, Yahweh saves, for a reason. In his obedience to the conquest commands of God, he is a type of the servant of God par excellence, Jesus Christ. The servant of God who would clear the universe of our enemies. And so bring us into the new heavens and the new earth, the true promised land. What did he say in John 8, 29? I always do what pleases him. See, that's the standard. That's the standard. I always do what pleases him. If you can't say that, you need a Savior. God has no other standard. Christ is the standard, then, now, and always. The rest of chapter 11 is going to wrap up the conquest for us, conquest proper. If you'll note in this next section here, as we're, we're at the end, of the, uh, the beginning of verse 16, the end of verse 23, these last verses are kind of their own unit here to recap the extent of the whole conquest, south and north. We'll bring him in here because we, we probably don't have enough for one sermon out of, out of that. So we pick it up in 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Balgad and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, and Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. So in verse 18, we find out just how demanding the Lord's call was on Joshua, just what it was that was required of him. It was constant war with all of these kings and their peoples. And the Bible is extremely condensed here. So we want to be sure to call out the fact that just because it might take 5, 10, or 15 minutes or so to read chapters 10 through 11, these very condensed reports, that the conquest itself also didn't take too long. We would be incorrect if we assumed that. Verse 18 is a bit of a clarifier. This all took a very long time. It was a long and grueling conquest. Joshua chapters 2 through 11 give us the highlights, but this it wasn't like this was a really long summer. This went on and on, and Israel knew that. Going into the conquest, God had said way back in Exodus 23, 29 and 30, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out. Why does God take his time? He cares for his people. So again, can't God just snap your fingers and kill all the armies in our way. But he doesn't do that. He works through his people. What is he doing? He's establishing the fact that he will overcome everything in the way of his promises to you. 
And He wants you to see Him do it. He wants us to walk by faith, not by sight. So He normally moves by means and not by magic. And God often works within the means of His own creation because we have to live in it. It has to be sustainable for us as we sojourn here. This principle still holds true today, at least in some way, right? God does not necessarily work in quick flashes. Things take time. Right? We, we're on this side of it, we think five years or ten years or maybe even twenty years, a very long time. God, how, how can you just, how can you keep dragging this out? It's not a long time for the one for whom one day on earth is like a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Now, if we took that strictly literally, which we don't need to, two thousand years since the ascension is what for God? Like 48 hours? Surely these are the very last days. Maybe. Maybe they are. Maybe we aren't anywhere near the end on God's timetable, beloved. So we walk by faith, not by sight. The main thing is that you know He keeps His promises. God works over the long haul. And so it's, it's good and right for us to keep, just keep living, keep taking out the trash, keep going to work, keep brushing your teeth, keep attending classes, whatever it is. On and on it goes. We have need of endurance in Hebrews 10.36. None of us should be thinking that we won't need to endure in, in our days. The Bible's been saying that since Hebrews was written in the first century after B.C. We must endure. We're not called to hold our breath until we get magically zapped out of here. And look at the fearfulness of God's hardening work in verses 19 through 20. The Gibeonites were the only ones who came to peace with Israel, and we know they had done it rather shadily. They'd lied, but they got it. All the others... All the others Israel encountered in battle did so because they had been hardened by God. It didn't matter how many defeats they saw or experienced. They were going to keep trying to kill the Israelites. If God decides to show mercy, nothing can stop our salvation. If He decides to withhold mercy, nothing will accomplish our salvation. How God dealt with the Canaanites is how He will ultimately deal with all human history. So we can be like Rahab and bank on God's mercy or we can be like the rest of Canaan. And why, again, why did they keep walking into their own destruction after they saw their countrymen defeated against all odds time and time again? God hardened them in their rebellion against Him so that they would not turn to Him. Why? Because He wanted to clear out the land for His people. He had promised to. He wanted to. He hardened them in their state of rebellion. Again, it's not like the Canaanites were like, we just wanted to let you guys in here, but it's like we can't stop wanting to kill you. No, they, they hated the Israelites. And God hardened them in that state rather than turn them. Their iniquity was full, as God prophesied to Abraham. God was done letting them sin without punishment. And again, God makes no apologies here. We have a problem with God hardening. God does not have a problem with it. The Holy Spirit isn't embarrassed to tell us that God works like this. This is for all the world to read and see. God is not afraid of modern you know, uh, critics of the Bible or people that would call Him a monster. And God's not afraid of that. 
God would say, you have no idea who you're talking about or what you're talking about. Of course you think I'm cruel and mean, but you don't know what you're talking about. God is not to be taken lightly. He will not be forgotten. Receive the mercy of His Son while His arms are outstretched to you in mercy. Lest you wait until they are stretched out to take hold of you and throw you with the devil and all his angels into eternal punishment. It is better to tremble at His judgment than to complain about it. There's nothing we can do about it. Only a fool thinks he can keep up such nonsense forever that God just plays around. It is this about our God, the certainty of His Word and the extent of His power that lets us know our fearfulness in life is ultimately needless. Just listen again to how this account closes. Let's call this out. Look at verse 21 one more time. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. You know who the Anakim are, don't you? You know what they were. They were big old giants. Literal giants. Forty years earlier, Israel had seen these giants. I remember being told when I was a kid that because Jewish people were short, and the people of Canaan, if they were like six feet tall, they would have been really scary. No, they're giants. They're giants. They're the descendants of the Nephilim. Forty years earlier, Israel had seen these giants and said, there's no way we can conquer this territory. We're not, we're not going in. And they wandered in the desert for them. But Joshua cut them off when he saw them. Giants? How, how did he kill giants? How indeed? How powerful is God when He's fighting for you? The way the text summarizes the great conquest of Canaan is to show like it was this total. They also got rid of the giants. They got rid of the great horde. They got rid of the giants. Now, there's descendants of them that were still around. Who knows if they still are today? Gath, you know, that's where Goliath was from. That's why he was at 9-6, a tiny one. But Joshua even defeated the giants. This text is telling you this is how total it was. How could they defeat giants, beloved? How could they not if God is fighting for them? How needless. Think about this. And again, I'm not talking down on them. We're observing it as we look back to the past. How needless had Israel's fear been 40 years earlier in Numbers 13? They could have had it then. God's... God's not afraid of giants. Right? We would do well to be afraid of giants. But God had said, I will be with you. Go. No, we can't go. They're too big. I'll never forget. I think I've told you this before. We're driving around San Diego. There's this immaculate um, Seventh-day Adventist church. It's so beautiful and so disgusting at the same time. Right? This pagan temple. And... Gianna asked this big white building. She said, what is that? We said, well, well, that's uh, the Mormon church. And she said, God wouldn't fit in there. She was a tiny little thing. I loved it. But how, 
they had wandered and wandered for nothing. For nothing. Why do we doubt Him? And I really mean the we there, because I do too. Why do we doubt Him? It's better to just listen to His Word and believe Him. Do we understand how strong He is? There isn't a single enemy you have right now. There isn't a single source of opposition that can avail against our Lord. Nothing can stop God from keeping His promises to you, beloved. Nothing. We, we, why are we so afraid of everything? Why do we live in such fear from the small things to the big things? Christians, we sound like chicken little. No, that we want this world to end. We want it to fall apart. We want our redemption. Remember? Let it go. Go after the people to save them, but let it go. It, it doesn't matter how strongly you try to hold this nation up. It's going to die. God's going to burn it up from sea to shining sea. I promise. So let it go. It's going to hurt your faith. And if that makes you mad at me, then be mad at me. Would you deny the Word of God? Let it go. Don't live with this fear of losing this world. Of course you're going to lose this world. Do you want to keep it? No, we don't want to keep it. We want the new heavens and the new earth. We want salvation to come. Lord, rend the heavens and come down. That's what we want. Nothing can stop God from keeping His promises to you, beloved. Nothing. And furthermore, you and I tonight abide under a better covenant than they did. Established on better promises than they had. You see, God promising you a stretch of land in the Middle East is nothing compared to what Christ won for you and I. Nothing. This is a better covenant. What it promises is better than what the old covenant promised national Israel. That's Bible. That's Hebrews. We will worship other gods just like they do. We won't think we do because we don't worship statues, but we worship other gods. We'll serve our desires. We'll live in fear in spite of God's promises, just like Israel did. So what's the difference between us and them? Beloved, the difference isn't in the covenant people. It's in the one who's going to and is required to keep the covenant. And in the new covenant, the one required to keep it for it to stay in force forever He's done it. He's kept it. Therefore, it will never pass away. That's your covenant. So when you blow it, you don't lose. You repent because He loves you, and you walk on. As God scorched the earth in the promised land so that His people could possess it, Jesus scorched the earth of sin and of the enemy that He might bring us all the way home to Himself. Our final victory will come on the back and by the strength of Jesus for us or it will not come at all. If Jesus is the only thing in which we have faith, then everything is going to be 